Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have found the right show. Now, today's episode is all about precision agriculture. So if you're into agronomy and variable rate technology, or what our guest today would prefer to call optimal rate technology, you're in for a real treat. If those terms are new or unfamiliar to you, just at a basic level, what we're talking about is technology that's used to understand the variability of a field so that the precise, hence the name precision ag, amounts of seed, fertilizer, or other inputs can be applied in a way that maximize that crop's response and, of course, overall profitability. Plants obviously don't grow by the acre. They grow individually and may respond differently based on site-specific factors. For more on Precision Ag, after you listen to this episode, there's several others uh, that we've done that you can go back and listen to. I'll put a link to those episodes in the show notes. Today's episode, though, is part of the series I'm doing this year called The Tech-Enabled Advisor. These are episodes I'm releasing just once a month throughout the year to get a better understanding of ag tech through the lens of the buyers and users of the technology rather than the entrepreneurs and investors that we often talk to on this show. We've done four of these episodes so far. They are episode 255, 259, 264, and 269. And from what I've been hearing from a lot of you who are listening, the reception so far has been excellent. I think today's will be equally as excellent. Joining me on today's episode to talk about precision ag is Jonathan Zettler, who is an agronomist and the founder of Fieldwalker Agronomy Limited, which is a private crop consultancy in Minto, Ontario. After 17 years in ag retail, Jonathan decided to launch the company in 2018 to provide profitable, actionable advice to farmer customers. Now, to make sure we hear from all different types of guests on this tech-enabled advisor series, I have deliberately asked various ag tech companies to partner with me on each individual episode. So for today's show, I'm fortunate to be partnering with Croptimistic Technology, the makers of Swap Maps. Some of you may remember Croptimistic from my interview with company president Corey Wilness last year in episode 211, or maybe you've heard the separate podcast that I do in partnership with them, called SWAT Agronomy. Well, Jonathan at Fieldwalker was the first provider to test and start offering SWAT maps in Eastern Canada. For just a brief refresher on SWAT maps, SWAT stands for Soil, Water, and Topography. These maps are high-resolution soil foundation maps used to execute variable rate fertilizer, seed, soil amendment, herbicide, and precision water management. Instead of just using imagery on vegetation, also known as NDVI imagery that I'm sure you've seen before, Swap Maps takes an integrated soil-based approach that starts with RTK or LIDAR elevation, soil color sensors, and electrical conductivity. Then they use that data to build more useful layers, such as topography models, water flow paths, normalized EC layers, and soil organic matter. With their patented process and proprietary software tools, layers are modeled into a single encompassing map that depicts soil properties, water influences, and topography of that field. Croptimistic Technology is the company that created SWAT maps, and they partner with companies like Jonathan's to implement the technology and combine it with local agronomic advice. 
You can learn more about Swap Maps at swapmaps.com. In today's episode, Jonathan and I discuss the evolution of precision agriculture adoption in his area of Ontario, how he's building his agronomy business using Swap Maps as part of his foundation. He'll also describe the rest of his agronomy tech stack, what tool he'd still like to see created to add to it, and why tech, in his opinion, will never be able to fully replace an agronomist. Oh, and he'll also tell us why he prefers the term optimal rate over the term variable rate. Okay, I'm going to drop you into the conversation where Jonathan is talking about precision ag adoption in his area. Keep in mind that he was literally in the field as we were doing this interview, so you might have to forgive a bit of background noise here and there, but I don't think it's going to be too bad. Here's my conversation with agronomist Jonathan Zettler of Fieldwalker Agronomy Limited. So in, in my area, historically, precision ag, I would say, was a slower adoption or less adopted maybe than other areas of the province. And some of that has to do with the fact that we're maybe higher soil pH than the majority of the province. So we don't need to do variable rate liming, which is a significant cost if you do need to do that. So as a result, people tend not to spend money on doing grid sampling or some of those things. But I saw customers going out and buying and upgrading equipment when it came to planting capability or or maybe they bought a strip tiller with a cart behind it that they could do variable rate fertilizer, but they didn't have anyone to help them figure out a process to go about doing that. So they're investing in the equipment, maybe not utilizing it. And as I'm walking fields on a regular basis, you see the variability in the field and you're like, well, there's probably some something here. We just need to figure out a system to do that. So that's where I kind of figured there's probably some opportunity there to help people with that. And you kind of need a bit of an operations background to understand the equipment limitations and what it's capable of. Plus, you need the agronomy to know what rate to put in. And I felt like having that dual skill set gave me some ability to bring that to the table. I understood the monitors and, and what's required from running custom app equipment and that and, and farm equipment and understood the agronomy in terms of, yes, there's there's some rates that make sense to adjust and some that don't. And is that what you found as you got into business, the farmers you work with was driving them to you is that they wanted precision agriculture, but they just felt like they didn't quite have the full skill set to do it on their own? I would say that was certainly some of it. So the typical client that I'm working with probably is under the average age of farmers just because they see themselves still farming in 20 or 30 years and they want to figure this out versus someone that's maybe closer to the end of their career and doesn't have someone taking over. So they've invested in the equipment and in a couple of situations, they've maybe taken one or two runs at trying to figure out precision ag, but just maybe didn't have a lot of success with it. And some of it maybe was the methodology that they were using in some of those cases, but they also need someone that holds their hand, you know, through the first time that they go and upload scripts and that maybe doesn't work right. Or there's been a couple of situations where I went through that process learning as well that, you know, okay, we forgot to upload the boundary file and the script is two townships over kind of thing because it wasn't properly geo-referenced. And so you need someone to help work through some of that. And then once you kind of get through that part, then it gets a little bit easier as you go on and start to do more things. When you're having this sort of interaction with a farmer and let's say, hey, I've tried precision ag and I couldn't get it to work for me. Are they willing to start from scratch and kind of bring in your program? Or are you having to kind of work with what they're already using to try to help them the best you can with that? I would say in 90, 95% of the situations where 
using the program that I'm bringing to the table. And then in the other situations, they're kind of doing it themselves. So in, in those situations, it's just easier to start fresh typically. And then if they have yield data, we can certainly use that to help figure out rates and different things. More data is good in that respect, but in a lot of situations, they're coming to me because they like what the maps that I'm working with bring, which is SWAT maps today. So they like that map and that process and the methodology of what we're doing. And, and that's the main reason that they're coming to me to work with them in those situations. So. And do most customers start off as, you know, kind of a full agronomic services customers? Or do they start off with like, hey, we'll do the swap map service for you. And then perhaps down the road, you know, more uh, agronomic advising and consulting. I would say there's kind of two types of customers I work with. The swap map people tend to do more of their own crop protection and field walks. Like they tend to be fairly involved in their fields. So they're just kind of looking for that last 10 or maybe 20% to move the needle on their crop production. So a lot of things are already in place and they're just kind of looking for the top of the, the pyramid, so to speak, to put the capstone on. And, and I help those guys. And then the full service agronomic package tends to be producers that have a lot of things going on and they've got maybe multiple businesses on the farm. So maybe they have a dairy farm, maybe they're running a trucking business. In some cases, they're seed growers running a seed cleaning plant and need to focus on that. And they're just making sure that there's someone checking the fields on a regular basis that's not missed, right? And some of those people certainly are, as they invest in equipment and different things, are adopting maybe swap maps, but that's probably more secondary to what's going on to try and manage field variability. It's mainly focusing on getting the key pieces right first. Gotcha. That makes sense. And when you started a field walker, did you know you wanted to work with SWAT or did you know you wanted to get a soil map rather than just relying on yield or maybe NDVI type data? How did that kind of initially start? So I did work with some NDVI type programs in ag retail prior to going out on my own and went through the process of working through that. And there's situations where it felt like it kind of matched the field, but in other situations, using biomass to try and do that, it, it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so in my area, because we weren't doing lime, grid sampling probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. So then it's like, okay, well, at a minimum, we want to be able to do variable rate seed, ideally variable rate nitrogen, variable rate phosphorus, variable rate potassium. And so then you start going through the list of the different options out there in the industry that can do some of those things. And, and that starts to cut out different options. And so as I went through the process of what to work with, I wanted a soil-based layer before I went out to do that. And that automatically cuts it down to certain things and then didn't want to have to figure that out on my own. So then you're kind of looking, okay, well, what's some products in the marketplace that have gotten some traction already and have had some good adoption rates? And then I started thinking, well, maybe there's something that has worked extremely well in a lower yield environment than what I'm working in today. And then I can bring it here. And if they're getting payback doing it precision ag wise, then I'm in a higher yield environment for the most part than they are. I should get even more payback and going through that process. Then that kind of led me to using swap maps in this situation. That's a really interesting thought process. I wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah. I mean, if they're finding money in it and low yield, you should just be able to kind of multiply a little bit. 
was that your experience and what was different about using it in, you know, when you say higher yield environment, you're in, you know, real good soils, more moisture further east uh, than they are in the Western kind of more prairie, I guess you could say. What did you find? I'm not trying to suggest that they don't get higher yields there depending on the environment, but what I see for wheat yields here as an expectation is maybe a bit different than what they are. And so a larger operation here is, let's say, 3,000 acres cash crop-wise. Well, that revenue-wise, that's probably equivalent to a 10,000-acre farm in Western Canada because we usually say every acre here is equivalent production-wise to about three acres in Western Canada just in a dryland environment. So why I wanted to kind of look at something along those lines was moisture is kind of the limiting factor in those environments and water around how they decide some of those zones and you could start to see that here as well so you would have two different positions within the field topography wise but one is staying dark green and the other one's completely burnt up and where we're at yield wise today we're finding fertility is no longer the limiting factor growing season isn't maybe the limiting factor we're running up against water in some of those situations even though we're in a 40 inch rainfall environment compared to let's say 15 or 20 inches in western canada where some of those mappings used we're starting to run out of water in some of those zones so when you start to build a map based on that you kind of need that water layer in there somehow as part of the prescription and you starting to see that is that a result of well we just didn't have the technology to kind of see it in the past but it's probably always happened or is this a change either due to when the rainfall arrives or due to the soil itself? I would say we've kind of solved some of the uh, soil fertility crop nutrition pieces. And then as people tile drain, so tile drainage is almost a necessity if you want to be in the top 50% of producers kind of thing in my environment. Um, You start putting some of those things in and then increasing plant populations, better genetics, that disease is no longer the limiting factor, fungicide use, split nitrogen, like all of a sudden, a lot of these other things that could be limiting factors for yield start to be taken off the table. And then you're left with water is one of the few things you can't really do anything about if you don't get rainfall. And there is certainly certain times of the year that we're a lot drier than others. And that tends to be July and August is kind of our dry season, so to speak. If you don't get rain now this year in August, I'm sitting in on the edge of a wheat field right here and the guy's struggling to get straw off because every three days we get rain and can't get it bailed without it being dry enough. So it does happen, but if we do run into dry weather, there are parts of the field that we don't have enough water to maximize yields, so to speak. So you just mentioned kind of water is one thing that you obviously don't have complete control over when it rains or how much it rains. The other one is is soil. You don't have a whole lot of control over certain qualities or certain aspects of your soil. So it's important to kind of start a data layer with those factors, because then you could focus on what you can control to kind of adjust to those factors. Yeah, that's correct. You're hundred percent right. So if you have an area of the field that maybe floods out periodically, when you do have a wetter year or the crop in that field that can't handle moisture stress at that point, but it's extremely high fertility, you're going to manage that maybe a bit different than a part of the field that's high fertility, but runs out of moisture consistently. So if you're kind of bumping up at the upper end of 
using the available soil moisture in the soil there to grow that crop. Yes, you want to make sure the, the fertility is in check. And then you're going to have other areas of the field, maybe where you have flooding issues or denitrification issues. And the water layer just helps sort out why it's low yielding in that part of the field or high yielding in that part of the field. And then you can manage the fertility accordingly. What's your sense of the opportunity of growers that could be embracing precision ag today, but just aren't? Probably the biggest thing that you need as a grower to embrace it and maybe aren't is the ability to do variable rate planting or some way of getting seed on and pretty well any other variable rate applications that need to happen. If you're working with an ag retailer and you just don't have the the budget necessarily to justify precision ag equipment, you can hire someone for those components, but it's really tough to hire someone for the planting piece if you're doing that yourself today. So if you're considering it and want to start somewhere, probably the first step is to collect data to see if there's even enough variability to justify doing it, which in most cases there probably is. But without that layer, you can't even do anything. And then the next piece is invest in planting equipment so that you can do variable rate planting. And there's lots of aftermarket options. You don't need to buy the $150,000 or $200,000 24-row individual row planter in order to do that. In my area, if you're a smaller operation and you're running a six, eight, or even 12-row planter, it can be just as simple as buying the monitor and maybe putting hydraulic drive on to start. So you have that capability and maybe you're relying on your retailer to VR apply the fertilizer from that standpoint, or if you want to do an on-off script with fungicide or, or whatever it is. So you don't have to go all out. A lot of people that are working with the tools that have, let's say, 10 or 15 or 20 years of experience with it just started, right? And you just keep failing forward more or less with it. That's probably the best way of describing it because not every single time you go and do this is it a home run. So, Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. And what other tools have been kind of instrumental in your business in, in growing your company other than obviously swap maps? So that's probably been the main tool that I've focused on. A lot of the other tools that I use day to day, maybe the clients already adopted or I've suggested that they adopt. So other tools and in other podcasts, you talk a lot about tech stack and what that looks like. So I think you calling it tech stack is a great way of framing it and the reason for that is because not one program is likely going to answer all the questions. So if you're looking to offer something, just be good at what you need to do. You don't have to offer something to everyone. But from a table stake standpoint, as an agronomy service provider, the farm client that I'm working with probably needs some way of having free access to it rather than them having to pay for a portion of it when it comes to a, a fee structure. John Deere Operations Center, for example, for producers that are using John Deere Operations Center... I find extremely helpful for someone like myself because I can see when they planted the field. I can see when they sprayed the field. If we put a plot in, I don't have to hound them for data. I can go and pull that off, given the right access rates. And as a tool, that has been extremely valuable for me as an agronomist when it comes to tech adoption. Another portion of the client base uses climate field view. So using that tool for has applied maps has been extremely good as well. So you need probably some sort of as applied tool that can show you GIS data in the field, but they're not great 
scouting or agronomy tools. So that's where you need something maybe like SWAT records, formerly used to be called crop records, to warehouse all that data. And working with a number of different weather-related tools as well, just so that we can try and understand, you know, what the disease pressure is. So in cereal crops, for example, we tend to do two fungicide passes to manage that fairly consistently on most acres. And so it means fungicide use maybe isn't as critical now a year like this, where we've had a lot of rain the last, say, six weeks. There's probably been more fungicide applied on soybeans than than normal as a result to manage for white mold and, and other leaf diseases. And same with corn, like there's a portion of producers that maybe apply fungicide year in, year out. And then there's some people that rely more on weather data, depending on how much rainfall we've had and what the crop looks like and how humid is it. And so having some of those weather related tools to manage for year to year variability is, I think, pretty critical to do that. And could be using like rainfall data, maybe in something like climate field view could be using Yukoagro's white mold modeling in soybeans, for example, or disease modeling in winter wheat. And then there's a number of other ones that are kind of in the background that can't really say a whole lot today, but I'm working with as well to see if it's a fit for Ontario. So, Okay. Well, cool. No, I, l- I like the teaser there. You got my curiosity up, but okay. I could tell it's uh, we're not going to get too much information on those, but maybe if you could speak more generally about where do you see opportunities? You know, a lot of ag tech types listen to the podcast, especially those wondering kind of where they, there might be opportunities for business. From your standpoint, you know, actually being in the field and working with growers on a daily basis, where do you see opportunities that maybe ag tech hasn't quite hit the market that you've seen? The single biggest one, and I keep looking on a regular basis for this, probably one of the most labor tensive things for me especially in the off season is fertility planning. And there are not a lot of great tools for fertility planning. Some of them maybe are okay at fertilizer racks. I'm in an area where there's a fair amount of livestock manure or we get biosolids from a city applied on a field. There is not a lot of great tools out there to manage the planning of it and all the applications that happen. And it also needs to be able to blend fertilizer blends. So we tend not to apply a lot of straight product. It tends to be sold as fertilizer blends in our environment. And if it doesn't have the blending functionality to make those blends that you can give a blend sheet to a retail, like those are table stakes things in my mind to keep track. Now, some of them do a decent job in terms of being a warehouse for soil testing and different things. But to me, you should be able to go through and mine that by field and then compare it to yield and different things so that you can do some very crude, even if it's an Excel or some sort of stats tool. Like Excel has a lot of stats capabilities in it if you play around with it that you could run, okay, the phosphorus levels, let's say, is 20 ppm Olsen versus 10 ppm Olsen. Like what's the yield environment for those? And especially once you start breaking that out into management zones, all of a sudden you can start to remove other factors that may have influenced that, whether it was water related or shading or whatever else is going on. So that's a good one. I don't think we've discussed anything like that on the show. So right now the fertility planning tools are mostly coming from what the input companies themselves or just Excel spreadsheets mostly. From what I've seen, uh, people use Excel spreadsheets or Word documents that end up being incredibly manual for the most part and maybe not georeferenced necessarily. And some of them are coming from retail companies using 
there's a number of software providers uh, in the U.S., but sometimes they're designed for like a multi-location company, not necessarily an individual private agronomist. And so the hurdle to try and clear that price tag is maybe a bit more than what people are willing to bite off. That's kind of some of the things that I see in that space. Well, I want to talk to you about you know, this idea, of course, this is a series called the Tech Enabled Advisor. There has been some conversations out there, I know for sure on Twitter, and I'm sure a lot of other places about, you know, sort of like tech replacing an agronomist. And, and I know you have some thoughts on this. So I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what the relationship will be as we look out forward in the future of agriculture between technology and the need for, you know, physical boots on the ground. I don't think the physical boots on the ground is going to go away anytime soon, but what tech's going to do from an agronomy standpoint, we, we can already see this a bit with the John Deere operation centers and the climate field views to some extent. It should, provided that you use it right, increase your efficiency significantly and allow you to cover more acres per unit of time invested. So I look at back when I started as an agronomist and doing fertility planning as an example, you had to manually calculate or maybe use Excel to calculate how many total tons the producer needed by field. You used a separate blending program to print out all the blending tickets, and then you manually printed it off and then either delivered it by hand or emailed it to them maybe as a PDF if they had the computer skills to do that. And then when it came time to figure out what fields were due for soil testing, you manually went through the paper copies or maybe printed out the database from the soil lab and manually went through and, and tried to match up. Okay, this was done this year, this was done that year kind of thing. And to me, a lot of those functions could be done automatically. And, and it's not good value for a client to be paying someone to be doing some of those tasks that they need to be done, but could easily be automated, right? And that's kind of where I see a significant opportunity tech-wise. And what makes you think, you know, that there's no way, at least in the foreseeable future, that tech could fully replace the role of the agronomist? It's not going to. So when you go and walk a field and the producer's complaining about, let's say there's potash deficiency, and let's say you had a sensor that could scan the field and identify that there's potash deficiency, you still need someone to go through the process of eliminating, okay, it's maybe soil compaction is the underlying reason that you have potash deficiency there. Or maybe it was dry weather and you have clay soils and you don't apply a starter to leave a, a band of available potash there or potassium there for the plant to take up. So those are some things that you're not going to be replaced necessarily as an agronomist. It's I'm keen to adopt technologies as soon as it's available, if it can help the producer and help me service them, because there's no point in them paying me to spend time formatting spreadsheets to get their fertility program to them. Like if you use an automated program that consistently prints out the same style every single time, calculates the same amount of overage, gives you the blends by field and total amount of tons, it makes adjustments in season a lot easier that as they switch crops or maybe a uh, field was supposed to get manure and it didn't and you need to come up with a blend. You can go and figure those follow-ups and provide a more professional service as a result of being able to keep track of everything and, and keep it all formatted the way it should be. 
Another thing I wanted to ask you about here is you have voiced your opinion that maybe variable rate isn't the best term. You know, maybe optimal rate would be a better term than variable rate. Can you break down that opinion and maybe talk about why others may disagree? So the reason I suggested at one point that uh, we should maybe be calling it optimal rate rather than just variable rate. Optimal rate implies, in my opinion anyways, that uh, there's probably some thought process that went into why you're adjusting the rate in given parts of the field and refers more to the agronomy of coming up with the recommendation, whereas variable rate really just describes that the machine can adjust the rate. It doesn't imply anything that it's the right rate. So if you want to talk four R's, have my four R certification as part of my certified crop advisor, and you know, it's right rate, right place, right time, right source. And when you start talking about that, it kind of lends more to, you know, this rate is optimal, whether it's being adjusted or not, because there are situations when we make recommendations that the flat rate and really low testing soils, flat rate over the whole field is probably the most profitable because we can't put enough fertilizer on to, to maximize yields before running out of money. So in those situations, that's where, you know, when we're making recommendations rather than referring it to variable rate, yes, it's a great description to describe the fact that you can adjust the chain on the fertilizer spreader to go faster or slower in given parts of the field. But it doesn't necessarily imply that that was the right rate to put there. And I think it forces you to have a more in-depth conversation around why you're putting that rate where you are and maybe reevaluate the the decision-making process of how you came up with that rate. So that makes perfect sense. Why is it controversial? Just because people just love variable rate? I don't think some people like change. <laughs> or maybe or maybe <laughs> just that. haven't or maybe just haven't looked at it from the angle that I'm looking at it that words matter. But yeah, I, I, I get the part where they're maybe coming from. But to me, variable rate describes the equipment and the retail I worked for was a fairly innovator. Uh, in the late uh, late nineties, early two thousands on investing heavy in custom app equipment that could we'll call it variable rate apply fertilizer over the field, but that uh, doesn't mean necessarily that the right rate or the optimal rate was being applied. We assume that it was, but you need to ask more questions and probably need more data layers than just a grid sample to do that. Take a typical three crop rotation for Ontario, which is corn, soybeans, winter wheat, as far as the order that they kind of go into and then back to corn. Do you need to variable rate apply every single crop input pass that's over the field? No. You don't. You probably need to variable seed, probably need to variable your phosphorus and potash uh, at least once over the crop rotation to take out some of that variability. And then ideally, you could probably variable apply your nitrogen and corn and, and the wheat and probably the sulfur piece as well, because we're in a market where we're sulfur responsive. So when you start looking at it that, that way, like to get some of the low hanging return on precision ag, you don't necessarily need to spend huge dollars to do every single pass. It's just trying to target some of that key variability. Yeah, you need the optimal rate. But Jonathan, this is great. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're literally out in the field today, so thank you. Awesome conversation there with Jonathan Zettler of Fieldwalker Agronomy. I just love getting these really on the ground perspectives of technology, what's working, what's not working, and how it's actually being used. And so my wheels are already turning about if this might be a series worth extending into 2022. Would love your feedback on that as well. 
And one more thing that didn't make it into the final edit of this episode, but I really wanted to make sure we mentioned here is that Jonathan writes a very detailed agronomy newsletter that you will definitely want to check out if you enjoyed any of the content talked about here today. You can find that and more information about his work on his company's website, fieldwalker.ca. So go check that out. We'll link it in the show notes as well. Thanks again to Jonathan for being on the show. Oh, and he's a really great person to follow on Twitter. I followed him for quite some time at ZRAGRI, so Z-R-A-G-R-I, and also at Fieldwalker Ag. Also, thanks to Croptimistic Technology again for partnering with me on this episode. I really can't say enough great things about everyone on the team that I've had the chance to interact with there. So make sure you go learn more about them and thank them on Twitter as well. They're at SWATMAPS.com. That's S-W-A-T, maps, SWATMAPS.com. Last but certainly not least, thank you so much to you for continuing to show up each and every week to engage with this content. It's a privilege that you spend your time and your attention with me and one I definitely do not take for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.